You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Welcome to AAST Super Talk. This podcast is an audio adaptation of an AAST webinar held on 30th of May 2023 for Reconciliation Week. Its topic is understanding and better servicing your First Nations members. It features Phil Usher, Chief Executive Officer at First Nations Foundation, with Carlos Lopez, Policy Advisor at HESTA. In the spirit of reconciliation, uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and also the other lands on which participants are joining us from today. To me, it is on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people, a significant gathering place for groups of the cooling nation. And acknowledge and respect their continuing connection with the land. Uh, thank you for joining us today. My name is Carlos Lopez. Uh, I'm a policy advisor at HESTA and a representative at the Indigenous Super Working Group. I will be facilitating today's discussion on understanding and better servicing your First Nations members. Please feel free to post your question throughout the session in the Q&A box as we will be taking questions throughout the session. Joining me today is Phil Usher, Chief Executive Officer at First Nations Foundation. Phil is the CEO of Australia's only national Indigenous financial wellbeing provider. And since 2014, First Nations Foundations has helped the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community reconnect with $24 million in lost super via the big super day out. Under his leadership, First Nations Foundation was named the 2020 Indigenous Business of the Year from My Business. Phil is a Wiradjuri man, born and raised on Gomorrah country and has provided his business and cultural expertise, advising organisations such as the University of Newcastle, CBA, Australian Super, ANZ and NAB. Phil's podcast, Beyond the Gap, is among the top ranking management podcasts in iTunes. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. And uh, i just jump on and acknowledge country, uh, actually down in Melbourne too, so acknowledge the uh, Wurundjeri people uh, down this way. Thanks, Phil. Look, very much looking forward to hearing from you. You know, funds, I think, want to do good by their members. So how, how can we make sure that we get it right with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members? Yeah, I think you're, you're right. There's a lot of good intent there um, by funds and, and particularly people within the funds that are really driving these um, reconciliation action plans. And it's probably worth pointing out too a bit of the differences. Like super funds don't usually have a, an Indigenous affairs team or like a senior Indigenous person like some of the other sectors in, you know, certainly banking uh, have a whole Indigenous affairs team and senior Aboriginal people and uh, some of the mining companies and that. So I think some of those unique challenges internally um, kind of go understated and, and are certainly appreciated when people are pulling things together to make it happen. Uh, but the first part is probably just understanding uh, the audience, which is always a good place to start in any kind of marketing um, situation. And the, the fundamental thing to understand is just First Nations people perception of, of superannuation. I think it can be uh, too simple and get overlooked quite easily. Uh, we tend to jump to the how can we help, how can we engage, how can we better educate. But it's probably worth going right back to that basic um you know, just listening to how First Nations people perceive super. And, and the fact is that 
we look at the preservation age and the life expectancy, and it makes it a really hard sell for First Nations people uh, to engage in the sector. You know, the superannuation um, in Australia, it, it is, it's almost like a gold standard across the world for, for a pension system. But it just, it's not fit for purpose for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the reason is that the life expectancy for Aboriginal male is, is 71. Preservation age is well, around 60, uh, 65 if you want to keep working. And on top of that, you know, an Aboriginal person at age 60 isn't in the same health and wellbeing condition as a non-Aboriginal person at 60. So I think if we kind of take all of that, it'd be the equivalent of telling the rest of Australia that you can't access your superannuation to about 72, 73. And then if we put that out there, uh, we can imagine how disengaged, uh, maybe even more so, everyone else had been with the superannuation sector. So I think understanding that audience and just their perception straight away uh, helps you think a lot differently as to how you can better service and engage. And during that uh, COVID period where people could access their super early, we did a, a bit of a survey um, afterwards to people who'd done our training and we'd found that 40% said that they'd access super early uh, in that COVID access scheme uh, of both both of those $10,000 payments, which is way more than what it was kind of mainstream. And the reason was that they didn't think they'd, they'd ever be able to access it. So when the opportunity came up, uh, they weren't necessarily looking at the criteria. They just accessed it because they thought that was the only opportunity that they'd get to access their superannuation. So I think fundamentally understanding that uh, it's going to put you in a different headspace and a different thinking space on, on how you can interact and engage with with First Nations people. Yeah, that's, I think, two key points there, of course. One being the services that um, funds can provide to their members and how we can tailor them um, specifically for, for our membership. And the other one is obviously policy settings. So, you know, in terms of a, an industry, we really need to look at both, uh, not one without the other. So I guess from from your perspective, looking at that service delivery part, you know, one of the key issues that we're finding is perhaps um, lack of data collection or a really not only lack of cultural understanding, but uh, an actual lack of understanding of our membership base. So um, how do you see that developing? Yeah, it's probably worth asking the follow-up question is, what, what do we do with that data if we had it? If we were running a super fund and we came back and said we had 50,000 First Nation members, then what do we do with that data kind of afterwards? Well, it's, it's kind of handy to know. Um, but we kind of need to go a little bit further. Is that 50,000 First Nations people in regional and remote? Or is it in urban areas where, um, you know, we, we've got access to services and, um, you know, we think of university graduate, she's 28, lives in Sydney, works at Big Four Consulting. You know, 50,000 of those um, um, target market people are going to be very much different to the ones that are out in remote communities. So I think uh, it's probably thinking, what are we going to do with that data afterwards? Because uh, we know without that data, we know remote areas, there's challenges around identification, deceased estates, and accessing super earlier because they, they just don't have the life expectancy or health issues. But if most of your First Nation members are kind of urban, maybe regional, then those issues may not be as, as prevalent. So, um, yeah, certainly a, a big piece at the moment is identifying members. You can kind of cross-reference with postcodes. Um, you, you can have a look where there's higher Aboriginal uh, populations and, and make sort of assumptions. Um, outside of that, it'd, it'd be a pretty audacious goal to go out and ask uh, current members if they identify as First Nations. 
I know Department of Human Services, Medicare, Centrelink do that quite well. Uh, we had them at our recent financial wellness week and they had a flyer separate to that. It said, you know, identify on your Medicare card so we can help provide better services and, and find gaps for uh, people that don't have a Medicare card, um, which was a part of a program that I ran when I was, I was working for them about 10 years ago. And, and that was a sale point. Like, it's surprising how many uh, First Nation people didn't have a Medicare card. So our pitch was, if you can identify, then we know how many people kind of don't have one and aren't accessing those services. So that, that takes a lot of audacity to be able to do that. I know a lot of people are nervous, but... That's certainly, uh, yeah, one of the big thinking things to do. Yeah, and you mentioned a bit earlier as well, there is that service delivery piece and that identification piece, whether it's at the point of access and obviously that's, that, you know, that there's issues at that point as well. But obviously at, the, at that first engagement with the Superfund, on the access issue, you know, I think from a Superfund perspective, the I guess the, the result of uh some of the failures in closing the gap in terms of health outcomes results in that as you mentioned in that lack of access or diminished access to superannuation that's a that's a wider policy conversation i guess that you know how do you in terms of first nations foundation and yourself how do you see that debate moving in terms of what funds should be really considering or if the, is that a conversation really for for government and really not for funds to to determine yeah, there's probably two parts where you're limited by legislation and, and what you can do. So that's certainly lobbying. And we can do our part, but I think collectively uh, the, the super sector um, can do some lobbying. And that's where, you know, we talk about reconciliation action plans. We talk about from um, kind of safe to brave and the safe stuffs. You know, you reflect rap where you're uh, making connections and acknowledging country and, and you're doing all the one percenters really well. But that brave stuff is where we start pushing government. We lobby them and we get some of those changes for First Nations people. Um, outside of that, I think just understanding what's happening on the ground and, and the uh, financial councils, I think, are quite uh, a good resource if you can tap into that. We're at the FCA, Financial Council Australia Conference, a few weeks ago. And just in that uh, First Nations forum, you know, we get people from all across Australia saying that these are the challenges, this is what the issues that were happening um, online. And, and the ID one in particular, right, though, uh, I think it was Oztrack coming out with the six forms of alternate identification uh, for First Nations people. Uh, which which is great, and a lot of I think um, you know kind of senior managers or people higher up in organisations know that that exists. But they're saying when it comes to the individual on the phone, they're not accepting that ID. So yeah. I think even though we we have solutions in place, the actual application of that, and for that individual, it, it's probably nerve wracking too, right? Like, what's an elder? How do yeah. they know that's an elder that's got a signed document? And are they liable if they access give someone else you know information and it's yeah, that type of stuff that's probably uh, worth exploring in the next stage. We get the high-level stuff, but how do we roll that out and, and implement it um, effectively? Yeah, that's a good point. And, it, and, and there's been a question just asked here in the Q&A box that relates, I guess, a little bit to what you're, you're saying. So uh, the attendees asking if there is a preferred approach for obtaining um, if someone identifies as First Nations. So you mentioned earlier that there's a challenge and, and some are doing it well. So I guess, you know, what are the ones that are doing well actively doing? I guess that, what, that gap between what, what we can do at the moment versus what some others are doing. Yeah, I'm not sure if anyone's particularly doing the ID part well, and that's probably isolated to more of those remote communities. Um, and, and it's come down to, like, we've got that framework that at the end of the day, that person on the line uh, is, is not a senior person and they're, and they're not kind of backing themselves to follow that. Um, so it's probably worth 
and I don't know where this training sits with, but someone doing training on these alternate forms of identification and just giving that confidence to people to make the decisions and say, if anything does happen, well, I followed this process. Um, and, you know, that kind of limits your liability, I think, because you, you've followed due process. Uh, but certainly there, there's a disconnect between the two. And often these people will generally have, I find in most cases, they'll have a financial counsellor calling on their behalf. And then even that makes people nervous in some instances, you know, someone calling on behalf of another member, you're not sure about their ID. Is it elder abuse? Is it, you know, is it really who they say they are? So it gets into some of the complexities of actually um, executing, but certainly worth having a conversation and just understanding what happens at that actual customer service point rather than um, just changing the policy. Yeah, and I guess that's part of the role of um, sort of cultural awareness training may relate to that. Do you see a, a big role in that piece or do you think, you know, they, they're, of course it's always, there's always a role for cultural awareness and cultural training, but these are, you know, do businesses, do super funds need to really take a more holistic approach that recognises the different circumstances of First Nations members? Yeah, and this is uh, probably leads into a cheeky plug, but um, last year we launched our own kind of cultural and money training for the financial service sector, and it's around that exact issue, right? We found there's, there's some great cultural awareness training programs out there that give you understanding around what's happened historically, uh, some of our cultural belief systems, and some of those challenges from a socioeconomic point of view. But we found there's just that little gap in the market for the financial service sector where some of these challenges are so unique that no one else is kind of having those conversations. So that's why we launched our um, culture and money training program to, you know, give people this background information on the alternate forms of identification. What are some of the cues that the people on the phone can use to better engage with First Nations people? Things like, you know, silence isn't necessarily an issue um, as, as much as you think it might be. They're probably just paying attention or they're just, you know, kind of respecting the person they see in more of a, a position of authority. Um, so I think that certainly happens, and particularly the nuance for the finance sector, um, that stuff's going to help and give people, frontline people, um, a lot more confidence to be able to execute on some of these policy changes. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit of that uh, sort of ongoing education pieces that, that might help um, the frontline staff. And that's a good way to think of it is ongoing. Like you, you're not going to sit down and do a two-hour training session and be culturally competent. It's yeah. something that you just need to jump in and out of um, constantly and you kind of build up that confidence over a period of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned obviously other areas in the, just the broader financial services um, sector. Uh, I guess there's a service delivery piece, but obviously financial services itself, the, the products that are being, um, that are available, I guess, just have you seen any good examples within the sector, whether it's super banking of appropriately tailored products for First Nations consumers? Yeah, I think one of the the interesting ones is actually it's not so much a product itself, it's a, the kind of support around it. And I think Indigenous Business Australia is a really interesting case study where they get Aboriginal people into home ownership um, with kind of lower deposits required. Uh, and it's a tiered approach based on your salary. Um, you can buy into a property uh, with a lower deposit. And, and the business model is that once you build it up over a period of time, then they go into a mainstream lender. Now, IBA isn't a bank. They're not a deposit-taking institute, so they can't offer things like an offset account. And I think their interest rate sometimes may be a little higher than, than what commercial would be to offset that risk of a lower deposit. 
But we're finding First Nations people not overly keen on moving into the commercial space because they have such a good relationship with IBA and they know if they bring them up, they're going to have a general understanding of their situation. They have these other policies in place around, um, you know, freezing uh, home loan payments if they need in hardship or other support services. So I think having the product to, to start with is kind of the, the entry point, but mm. having that uh, customer service level afterwards and in that, that situation is incredible, right? They, they may be missing out on the opportunity to save tens of thousands of dollars on having offset accounts, maybe lower interest rate, but they're more worried about feeling comfortable to be able to bring up someone who understands their situation um, at the end of the day. Yeah. So obviously, I think as a super sector, we, you know, probably things to consider in that, on that front. Um, there's a couple of questions coming in, Phil. So um, uh, just one about, uh, so regional towns where it is perceived that everyone is equal is far from this in regards to getting ID. Uh, so towns, uh, even coastal in the northern New South Wales is one of these areas, for example. They tend to live in family houses where there where they can be anywhere up to three families. So individuals won't have, you know, the the, the, the utility bills if they don't have Medicare, passport or driver's license. So um, I guess just the, 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 the attendee just made that comment in regards to that ID piece and probably a little bit of that OSTRAC guidance that it does allow for a bit more flexibility. But uh, Phil, I guess we always see these, 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 these cases, right, where um, someone may not be able to meet um, that relevant, the relevant requirements. Um, I think, you know, there's a risk-based approach to this, but just from your perspective, you know, what can funds do at that point? Yeah, it's probably worth you know, just exploring each one of the options um, and going through that process as much as you can, because you're right, there's a limitation on what funds can do uh, before they, you know, go sort of too far or out of their uh, legislative scope. So. Uh, it's got those six forms of uh, alternate identification um, and, and going through, I guess, each one of those. But also, if there's any people on the ground, if they're, um, you know, not contacting uh, just out of their, on, on their own behalf, but with a financial counsellor, usually they're almost like a, call them a jargon translator, maybe. Somebody can translate the jargon for, for the okay. super sector to to that individual. Um, but we, we tend to find in most cases, they'll they'll hit one of those forms of identification. Um, it's, it's probably in some of those rarer ones where they, they don't meet it at all. Yeah, okay. Um, I might just shift a little bit uh, in terms of theme. One of the things, for example, that I think uh, as funds we do forget about is intersectionality. So making sure that we acknowledge that our members uh, who do identify as First Nations will be diverse, they'll be from different locations and with different needs. So. How can we make sure that we approach this concept of intersectionality um, appropriately? Yeah, it's a good question. And most people I find, or most organisations, kind of stop at identifying their uh, market as First Nations. And that's probably not niche enough because we've got, you know, we break it into even two broad categories, urban and regional remote. Uh, we break it into age, you know, 52% of First Nations people are under the age of 25. Um, and then we break it into, I guess, um, yeah, even age is at um, that younger age under 35, 40, or the ones that are kind of transitioning into retirement and looking to access their super. So I think breaking it down into those categories and, and trying to understanding the differences. I think one of the misconceptions is for the, particularly if you've got younger members, we haven't grown up with being such a deficit uh, mindset. 
Um, you know, we've certainly faced it a bit, but, you know, my dad talks about, he's 60 now, he talks about, you know, being kicked out of cinemas when, when they were in Dumbo because, um, you know, the Aboriginal people weren't allowed back then. Uh, but, but I haven't experienced that myself. So, again, if we go to that um, that avatar, the 28, she's graduated university, working in Big Four, big four Consulting, talking to her about superannuation as a First Nations woman probably isn't all that different to another 28-year-old. There might be some nuances on on how you reach them, uh, or maybe some of the casual language, but uh, it, it's one of those things that you try not to overthink. There, there's no certain thing that you need to do differently uh, if that's your cohort. But if we move forward to, um, you know, we go to that over forty five fifty, um, they're going to be engaging a lot differently. Um, you know, a lot of the we get a lot of questions around the mergers and takeovers. Um, you know, what happens when one fund takes over the other and then they send out all these letters and you're now going to someone else that you're, you've been with this fund for 15, 20 years and you're going to someone else and, you know, their performance isn't that great. So I think, um, yeah, you've got some of that, those issues as well. Mm. Um, so breaking it down, I think, into those customer life stages. And what we found worked really well, actually, we used to have a, um, an edu- education piece just on superannuation uh, for our audience and it, and it probably really didn't have a huge take-up. So what we've done is we've put superannuation into key life stages. So, you know, getting your first job, when you get all those forms and you've got to fill out your super thing, we educate people on how to do that. We do it if you're changing jobs. What happens if you started a family and your income's increased? You know, we might talk about insurance through superannuation and how that's an option. Talk about people that might be experiencing hardship and can you access super? Um, And then building it up to, you know, that retirement part, when can you actually access it um, for, for retirement income? And I find that hits the mark a little bit more than rather than saying, this is our superannuation course, this is what it means, here's a 15% uh, tax rate, here's non-concessional concessional contributions, here's a transition retirement. It's just yeah. overwhelmed for people that's, um, you know, makes it really complex. They're, they're so narrow-minded on what their current situation and scope is at the moment, how to super integrate into that current uh, life phase. And I think that probably hits the mark a little bit more. Yeah, I might, I'll come back to a comment you just made uh, in regards to that, to the stages, but I'll just go into the Q&A um, for a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, this this next question actually uh, sort of segues or it links nicely to what you've been discussing. So a lot of the focus has been on vulnerability, um, ID and access issues. So how, how can super funds better service their First Nations members when they are in that emerging middle class? So I guess going a little bit to what, to, to what you were just um, explaining. I think the, the emerging middle class and the younger ones, it's it's funny how super funds talk about, you know, quality retirement uh, and that's kind of their mission and their focus. And and that's really kind of a, the cost of entry, right? If you're starting a super fund, that's what you're there for. Yeah. It's like a, not like a speciality. I'd ask, what's what happens in those 40 working years prior to accessing super? You know, what are you investing in um, that's going to impact um, First Nations people? Like what's your... ESG or your ethical approach, because certainly for the younger generation, that's a really important aspect um, of superannuation. And they're starting to understand how much power super funds have over uh, companies that, that are doing the, the wrong thing. And I think Hester were quite vocal and, and generally seem to be the leader in this space when things go wrong or unethical. They tend to have a please explain really quick um, and, and did that with Rio Tinto more so than anyone. And I think that's what the younger generation kind of look for. They look for that um, that responsibility and that ethical piece more so than anyone. So it's probably worth looking at, you know, what can we do that 40 years before they retire and want to access super? What are, what are the things that we're coming out and saying? What are we supporting? 
um, you know, let's not run a, a webinar on maximizing super contributions, but how do we navigate the current cost of living at the moment for our members? Because that's what everyone's thinking about. And that's what some of those touch points are. So I'd, I'd try and challenge your thinking to look outside of retirement and say what's happening in that first kind of um, yeah, 40 years and how can we make sure that reflects the um, the intentions and values of our members. Yeah, that's um, that is interesting. Yeah, because as you say, obviously super funds are, are asset owners on behalf of of members. So um, the more they engage, um, the the more likely they are to really pay attention to to some of these things. Um, we've got another question here. Um, so super trades a fine line between being a financial product and providing social welfare, at least at that retirement stage, of course. Um, are there learnings that we as an industry can take from Centrelink about providing specialist support services, providing approving um, um, First Nations backgrounds and so on? Yeah, I think Centrelink are a good example only because they've got distribution. They've got offices everywhere. They can go out and, and set up in remote community and, and they do for you know, a week at a time and provide that service. I think it, it's a lot more difficult for super funds to do that because you don't really have uh, a customer service branch or, or place that you go to to interact with your funds. So I think that's um, yeah, a lot more challenging. Yeah. It's probably just leveraging those people who are on the ground. Um, and, and again, the, the financial counsellors are the ones that are dealing with that real kind of hardship um, uh, transaction at that point of time. So it, it'd be worth having, um, you know, understanding some of their issues, uh, tapping into that network to find out how you can change some of those processes and, and improve the situation. Yeah. Um, we've got another question here. Um, this is a little bit a little bit more niche in terms of some of the services that super funds provide uh, or products at this point. Um, so do you have any claim sessions available for the communities uh, so they are aware of requirements and how claims work? And I guess just I'll, I'll do a parenthesis. I guess this is also uh, probably an engagement with Financial Council in Australia and those types of organisations that are on the floor, on the ground. So this is especially in regards to death claims and a potential hierarchy of claimants that a fund may have when deciding on who to pay. So I guess it goes to that um, kinship structure issue where the law doesn't necessarily recognise um, local cultural um, kinships. Yeah, it's one of those deeply confusing parts, I think, is super, but particularly the TBD stuff. Um, where it's probably worth us doing a bit of information on that. So we've got a few parts. One's if we talk about like the deceased estates, what's happening is people are passing away and they're not knowing who, who's got their superannuation. There's no wills or there's no, even if it's an information sheet, they know they've got super, but they don't know where it is. So that creates a complexity that's, that's probably outside of the super scope. It's, a, it's more around the ATO providing information as to where that may have been. Um, but outside of that, yeah, it could be worth um, some information pieces, but I find some uh, the, some insurers are very... Um, I'm going to say they're interesting with the way that they describe it. Like I'll, I'll do my own TPD uh, through uh, insurance and they were talking about, you know, if I lost both my legs, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to access TPD because I have an office job and I can still type and talk. So that kind yeah. of thing in its own, you think, well, that's total permanent disability, isn't it? I can't walk. No, you can still yeah. function and earn an income. So something like that is just, yeah, incredible and, and hard to kind of comprehend and, and it almost make people give up. Like if you're not getting it for that, 
then, um, you know, will you ever, is it just kind of a, a G up for making more money? We've heard cases where people say, you know, they've got terminally terminal cancer and they're not being able to access it. And uh, all these stories that travel a lot quicker than, than any of the truths behind it. I think it gets, um, yeah, complicated really quick. So potentially that's a part where the uh, super funds can, can do an education piece, whether it's, you know, a simple flyer or, or, or a fact sheet and, um, you know, distribute it to financial counsellors just so people understand the, the complexities of that insurance piece. Yeah, particularly during that period of, um, uh, for, for all claimants really, but that period of vulnerability where um, already engaging with super can be daunting um, and then you add the, the other layer of um, insurance and super, right, which is, you know, another layer of complexity. Um, got another question here. Unfortunately, a lot of inquiries from First Nations peoples is how they can access their super via financial hardship or compassionate grounds, um, as opposed to seeking other options first, because they don't know of any other solution. Um, I guess what's your comment on that? Yeah, it, it's, it's just that disengagement in, in the um, the sector. Like they, they don't think they're going to be able to access it ever again. So they might see that they've got forty, fifty thousand dollars sitting there. And that can be an easy access. And, and chances are they've probably tapped other places as well. Uh, we'll go to family first for money generally. Um, but then we'll what they do after that is payday lenders are quite easy in giving money. Like you go to a bank and they ask way too many questions, right? Go to a payday lender, they probably take your ID and that's about it. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you can get a loan. And then it's probably um, acting, sorry, engaging with super to, to be able to access that. So uh, again, it comes back to that. Um, not being able to, um, I guess, make it tangible that they're going to be able to access in that in retirement. And and when you look at that poverty mentality, right, you're not focused about the future. You're focused about right there and then. And whether you have, you know, $50,000 in super now or $500,000 in 20 years' time, there is no 20 years' time. There's only that mm -hmm. period of time and you're feeling the pinch. Um, so you're going to go through and, and access it at, at um, that point in time. Yeah, that, you know, there's figures out there, uh, you know, and uh, going back to the issue of intersectionality, um, you know, women will retire with X percentage less than men, um, but for First Nations women, that gap is even is even higher. Um, but from an industry perspective, what we're trying to do is, you know, I guess in, in terms of policy, trying to highlight that opportunity cost. Um, but, you know, of course, that's a different that there's a different conversation when it comes to some of our First Nations members. Because, you know, as you say, they're probably not thinking that far along um, of their life stages. Yeah, and once you get in that survival mode where bills are overwhelming and you need you need money to kind of get out of it, yeah, you're not thinking much beyond tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where the challenge lies in terms of um, how we as funds engage um, with our members. Um, so I did have another question that relates to what you just mentioned about life stages and and um, sort of being being more more concerned about the, the now. Um, one of the main differences of our, of our sector to to say banking or other other financial um, sectors um, is that default system in super right. Of course, it's changed a little bit through stapling, but just the general um, mechanism. So a lot of the times, super funds can't actually. Um, get a lot of information from, from members who join, um, whether it's through the employer. So do you actually see a role for employers on this space? I guess, you know, you've mentioned earlier 
a, a couple of things. One, it's not just a super funds that, that can and should, but probably a holistic approach across different sectors. Yeah, I mean, all of this just comes down to, um, I think I use that word audacity again, and the willingness to to do that and have that conversation with the, uh, the member group because, yeah, we know some of those organisations that they capture that data. We know that Coles has four and a half, five thousand Aboriginal employees, so they've got that data. It's that conversation is, you know, can we transition that data over to that default super fund who they go with? And then, as I said at the top of the, the session, what do we want to do with that data afterwards? Um, it'd be the kind of selling point. So you're right. The, I think the organisations are already getting it. It's just whether you um, yeah, pass it on to super funds, but then letting people know what they're going to do with that data and, and um, how you can create, I guess, better services for First Nations people afterwards, but uh, can potentially be a conversation between um, yeah, the two organisations and, and making that work. From a First Nations perspective, I mean, uh, for me, we, we, we get asked every form that we fill out, um, whether we, we identify as, as First Nations people and, um, yeah, if it gets crossed over uh, to another sector, um, that'd be useful. It's actually an example of that is um, when, we, um, when we're at the doctors and we try and access, um, uh, close the gap for, for affordable uh, scripts. And only kind of stays with that one pharmacy uh, that you go to or that one doctor. There's no big system. So, you know, if I'm up on holidays in, uh, in Queensland or something, I've got to see the doctor. They don't have that information on me. So from our point of view, it'd be really cool if there was like this system where we didn't have to keep identifying every time that we identify once and then it's kind of there and, um, yeah, it can be uh, useful. Yeah, and it goes, it goes to that, um, I guess, system, system approach to, uh, to, to engaging with, with the member. Um, so uh, we've got a couple of other questions coming in. So I might just, um, I'll read the, the, this one out, which is, we all have super, however, we weren't taught about it at school and most parents don't know much about it. Uh, can we lobby uh, for it to get put into school curriculum, even if it is sort of life skills, um, maybe prisons and juvenile facilities as well? So I guess a wide casting question, but um, I'll pass on to you, Phil. Yeah, it's a good question, and I'm, I'm always in two minds about uh, even extensive financial literacy in schools, maybe in senior years, and maybe I was just too naughty at school to, to, to be effective. But I think back to myself in year seven or eight, if we're talking about superannuation or tax or anything like that, I'm one, probably super disengaged, but two, I'm going to forget it by the time I, I get a job when I'm 18, 19. Um, having yeah. said that, though, we've delivered some sessions for some girls at high school and they've asked some of the craziest questions around superannuation and how to be tax effective with it so uh, I may be just uh, getting on in age and disconnected with the young <laughs> folk um, but I think if we can do it a way that makes it practical like understanding how does that impact me on my sort of everyday life again rather than just saying here's superannuation you contribute this amount you have this amount when you're older and it's super tax, tax effective way of, of building wealth um, it's not really applicable to your current situation. So, um, yeah, if we can somehow do that and make it palatable and, and real. And the other thing is you can't access it until, geez, at the moment, 60. I'll, I'll probably be 65 by the time policy changes again. It's yeah. so far away for young fellas to even contemplate um, that, yeah, there could be some work in that space. 
Yeah, yeah. I think to your point about life stages, obviously it's that engagement, um, engaging it back and linking it back to, to the individual's uh, circumstances. Um, we've got a question here from Ruth Stringer. Um, thinking about how financial hardship rules are defined, and this is just going back to that access piece that we were talking about earlier. Is this another area um, which may not cater well to Indigenous members, given its focus is on loss of a home owned by the member? So, you know, should we as funds be lobbying for a broader definition as a way of alleviating poverty? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question across the board because I think um, given the current economic climate, that's probably changed uh, so much in the last 10 years, whereas, you know, the, the, the traditional party line is that you don't generally don't want people to be able to access their super easily. You, you want it for that purpose of retirement, uh, which is great in a bull market and everyone's employed and inflation isn't overly high. But when we look at it now and in, in the the rental crisis and the cost of living and everything else. It's, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting uh, question. And, you know, people were, or parties were criticised, giving people that opportunity to access super during COVID. Um, and, and then people buying cars with it, like depreciating assets, or then people using it for a home deposit to, to get into the market. It's, um, yeah, it, I, I certainly don't have an answer, but it is one of those uh, complex, yeah. um, I think, political kind of questions. Yeah, yeah, and obviously the government's um, objective of super, proposed objective of super, sort of goes to some of these issues, right? Sort of really embedding that concept of um, not just preservation, but that concept of super is for retirement. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the, I think to be to be honest, one of the things that Hester sort of called for was to make sure that there was consideration given to. Um, the specific circumstances of First Nations peoples, because that, that is a very ever so slightly sort of it's a different matter in terms of how they engage with super. So um yeah, you know, from a super fund perspective, looking at policy, uh, you know, I wouldn't have the answer to that either. Um maybe it's more lenient on that that first point of access because you know we all find ourselves in a bit of hardship from time to time from you know no fault of our own. Maybe that first piece is a bit more lenient, but if you go to access it after that, then it's more more systemic kind of hardship. There's probably bigger conversations to be had or more support that's needed rather than accessing your super. So it could yeah. be more flexibility on access point one, but after that, it's, yeah, it's a bit harder. And there's, you know, there's also, I guess, that question of um, there's, there's other conditions of release, like permanent incapacity and, and things like that. And that'll, as you mentioned, feel early in terms of engaging with an insurer earlier on, you know, permanent capacity is separate, but that'll look different for First Nations peoples. It'll look different in remote communities versus um, the urban areas. So is it a matter for, for super law to, to really, or for the industry really to engage a bit more with specialist practitioners or um, First Nations communities in regards to their health so that we can understand a little bit better what, what, um, a permanent incapacity condition might look like versus what what the sort of um, straight and narrow definition might might consider. Yeah, I think so. Any opportunity we can get to learn more about a customer base, but bringing some of those insurance companies too, I think is critical because you're probably at a limitation as a super fund around what you can do and then it, it goes on to the insurance organisation. Um, the next step might be bringing those guys that own the insurance policies along for that understanding and that 
uh, definition piece because you're right, TPD completely different from urban to some of the remote areas. And and as I said before, it's one of those you know super com complex areas of um, insurance in general. And it seems almost real discretionary based. Like, do you get at the end of the phone um, making the decision um, with some of it? But yeah, understanding those nuances certainly help. But bringing the the insurance sector along, I think, can be um, yeah a good yeah. next stage. Yeah, and uh, we do in the in the Indigenous Super Working Group, we do have some um, uh, three or four insurers participating. So it's good that, that you know they're coming to the table to to engage um, on that insurance topic. Do you think that there is a risk um, in terms of insurance and what implications there may be in the future if we do start collecting data um, on whether members identify as First Nations or not? Yeah, it's been a good question, and I, I just I just asked insurance company this, like their CFO and stuff, uh, and they said, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm naive, but they said it, it wouldn't have an impact because they're all pulled together. It's kind of a, a pooled group insurance where it'd be hard to adjust the premiums based on 4% of your member base having lower life expectancy or, or health kind of issues. I think maybe if we start an Indigenous super fund, then we might be in a bit more trouble, um, and it's mainly Indigenous members, but... Um, they've said it, it's probably statistically insignificant um, for us to to change that in in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you know, having having had the discussion in different forums, um, I've heard that question before, and uh, I think you and I feel that yeah, it sort of uh, we'd have this chat before around you know, it's probably not as um, negative as we, as it may be perceived out there in the industry. So that's that's probably a positive. For the fight for the industry for the um industry itself to start really just trying to move forward with some of this um and then we can keep tabs on that too right if we say on average first nations people are paying 22 percent more um yeah. Yeah, premium on their insurance and we can kind of uh, call that out actually that 22 percent is that the tax amount that you get for accessing your super earlier yeah, there's a taxable component and a non-taxable That part's bizarre. <laughs> Even, maybe that's a legislative change because you're in hardship and you get taxed at this ridiculous amount for that 10K that you draw out. It's, um, yeah, taxing the wrong person <laughs> that yeah. probably doesn't really need that money. Uh, but anyway, yeah. that's a bit of an aside. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, could, we could talk about, uh, I guess, tax concessions or not all day long in super. Um <laughs> Just reading a couple of other questions. Uh, super is not only for old people. I guess that's just more of a commentary um, by the attendee. But I guess anchoring on from that, so super is not only for old people. Going back to your life stages approach in looking at, at how members engage with their super, what, what do you see particularly around um, as the industry grows and as superannuation balances grow, um, and more and more people uh, in 30 years' time will be, you know, doing that massive transition to retirement. How do you, how do you see that engagement going forward? Um, I guess it's that cohort that's my age um, at that point in retirement. Yeah, I think I think one, it's the definition of old. <laughs> what what was your, what's your age number for that? But but I think if you look at most super funds. Uh, mission and purpose, it's around providing a quality retirement. And if we define retirement at age 60, then your external communication is saying provide a quality of life for people that are 60 or older. 
And I think that's where the disengage or the misconception that super is just for older people uh, really comes from. Like, like I said before, what, what is it that you can do in that 40 years beforehand to make people um, really engage? And again, it was Hester. I heard an ad for, you know, do you want low fees, high returns? Do you want a uh, super fund that's acting socially responsible? Do you want them to lobby for change and invest in ethical projects and divest from unethical projects? And that was all packaged in one kind of ad. And I think that sums up how you can get people involved in super a lot more because the, the fees and performance, again, every super ad talks about fees and performance and quality retirement. And then you just push that aside with super being for older people. How can you make it more practical or more tangible for someone who is 35 years old and um, yeah, just put it aside as something for, for older people. Yeah. Um, glad that the Hester ads are <laughs> Uh, are making their way. <laughs> it's like I'm <laughs> sponsored by Hester or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is an AIST um, uh, forum. Um, uh, I've got another comment here. Um, this is a good question. So would hiring a First Nations person or uh, hiring uh, plural uh, as a liaison person minimise the miscommunication and lack of understanding of our First Nations members? Yes, but making them executive. I think that's something we could push um, probably for the sector. If you have someone, if it's not an exec, it's, it's certainly in that senior leadership team, not just someone out on the ground, who can actually influence the rest of the, the C-suite and potentially the board to make those changes. Like it's incredible. Like I said, the banking sector have uh, Indigenous executives, then they have Indigenous affairs teams um, underneath. But if you had like a First Nations uh, advisor or senior advisor or something, that's going to change so much because then they can have those conversations on the ground and feed it back to the organisation and um, can kind of do that on a day-to-day -day basis because what I'm seeing is super funds, like the, the rap in this part is, you know, just good-natured people wanting to have an impact in this space, but they've still got their 50-hour-a-week job that they're trying to do as well, yeah. um, whereas other organisations have that luxury where Indigenous affairs is their, is their nine-to-five, and, and that makes such a difference. So um, that, that's, that's probably a really good point. If you can uh, make that happen as a super fund, it, it'd be an investment that I think can return uh, some great dividends. Yeah, so really looking at it more from an um, organisational perspective rather than just a sort of um, tokenistic or symbolic um, hire and then, you know, there's that, that, that support behind that function is not there or that seniority is not there. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be at the senior level too to be able to have that kind of cut through. You couldn't have a, a liaison officer just out doing the education piece and then they get told, you know, they won't take our ID, we can't access our TPD, and then they just get burnt out after two years. They've got to be yeah. at that influential level. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I might just very quickly touch back on, on, the, um, on the data uh, framework. Uh, we're seeing a lot of encouragement from ASIC through its Indigenous financial services framework around data collection. And I know we've touched on this, but um, how do you see this developing, given that there's a um, regulatory interest on this front, but there's still a lot that we as an industry can do in terms of explaining um, why we need that data. But uh, we're already seeing um, organisations like AFCA, for example, um, going down that path and it seems to be doing a, a, having a positive impact. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that will... Um kind of get easier with time uh one of my other ceos she said uh we seem to know how many first nations people are locked up 
but we don't know how many, you know, <laughs> who is what super funds. And I wonder at what point do you get asked that question when you get locked up anyway. Um, but, yeah, I think building that business case as to what to do with that data is um, probably the the main sticking point at the moment. I think people can say, right, we can see some merit in, in collecting that data and that information, but what are we going to do with it that's going to provide a social good? And then, like you said, can we get three or four case studies of other sectors that have done really well with it and, and push things forward? Um, you know, the health sector is probably a, a good idea where, you know, if you identify as Indigenous, then you get kind of maybe this, this health support or you get um, access to a mental health plan if that's required. If you identify in the super sector, what's what's the immediate thing afterwards or what can you do to improve that experience or, or access? Yeah, um, it's a big piece, definitely. But I think I'm seeing encouraging signs, uh, not just from um, the regulators, but from other sectors, which is which is positive. Um, we've got a question from Sean Westwood at CBIS. How would funds connect with financial counsellors if they currently have no or few existing relationships in this space? Um, are there professional organisations or peak bodies to build relationships with? Yeah, Financial Council Australia, FCA, um, they're kind of the peak body. They have a First Nations uh, member group uh, where it's just First Nations uh, financial councils. They have a conference every year. Um, setting up a stand there, uh, we do that every year and do probably about three or four months worth of work in a week because it's just everyone coming together and networking. So uh, getting to the FCA conference every year and just having a stand and interacting with different areas. Um, but also maybe like building, uh, CBA do this, they have a community of practice where it's uh, probably about half a dozen, I think it is, uh, First Nations, um, I think most of the financial counsellors, if not community workers on the ground, meet with quarterly just you know, finger on the pulse stuff. What's happening? What can we do better? How can we better service customers? So if you can start uh, implementing that, um, so you can understand what's happening on the ground, I think that that can give really good uh, sort of access. And again, a First Nations lead can can implement that and build that uh, probably more effectively than than anyone else. Yeah, um, and uh, just uh, I guess as an FYI, also um, uh, Financial Counselling Australia does sit within the. In, um, Indigenous Super Working Group. So I'd encourage um, all of you to um, within your funds to find out who from your who from your fund is representing on that on that group and um, perhaps connect. Um, that's a good forum to to have a chat. It's a good um, introduction forum, Matt, to just pointing out who's who and, and connecting really quickly. Yes, yes. Um, we've got Felicity Brennan um, just agreeing with the with the previous comment, um, Phil, around um, leading from the top. Um, this is someone with personal experience where they're saying that they're not senior and that they're finding um, that they really struggle to get anything off the ground in this space. Yeah, that, that'd be, yeah, I don't have to be in that position at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's where that, that rap process comes in, where it needs to be fully holistic, not just, you know, you need to involve senior people in that process, you need to involve decision makers in that process. Um, we've got a question from Bridget Inda. How can super funds keep Indigenous people culturally safe when they are required to engage with their culture in order to do their job? So in the case of a liaison, for example, given that they'll be put in the position where they are answerable to their employer and community. I think, uh, again, the, the, the cultural awareness aspect is really critical. Um, you know, plug our training in, our culture money training. Uh, reach out if you want to learn more about that. But the reason that's important is you understand someone's lived experience 
you know, one end was placed on, you know, taken away from home, placed on church-run mission, and, and you paid in rations, you're told where you could live, you're told how you could live. Um, and when you understand that someone's been through that experience and, and we've had stolen wages and we've never had the opportunity to manage our own money, then you, you kind of have a, a, a bit more empathy or a bit more understanding for the person that's ringing up on the end of the phone that, um, you know, they've got this whole history of legislation and policy as to why they're not necessarily understanding or engaging with the sector. So I find that can just change your mindset um, a little bit because it, it can get lost. Uh, some people think, you know, uh, First Nations people are getting special services. No one understands superannuation. No one gets it um, in general. So th there's probably that bit of disconnect. But when you go through that training and understand that it was actually designed for Aboriginal people to be reliant on the government and not manage and access their own money, and, and that was done up to the 60s or 70s, when you understand that point, I think it just changes that mindset and that engagement aspect a little bit more when you're having that conversation on the end of the phone. Yeah. And it, it goes to this next question in regards to best practice. What does best practice in this space look like? Um, yeah, I, I think best practice, um, if you kind of go from end to end, right, understanding the challenges of, of remote communities uh, and, and, and implementing that, um, having cultural awareness training uh, for, the, for the entire organisation, not just the frontline staff, not just the executives, but roll it out as far as you can. Uh, and then I think building that, that First Nations role in that leadership position, that even First Nations people on the board, so they can start implementing it and putting more pressure on. I think if you start going across that, um, you see, see a, a best practice. Setting up an advisory board, an Indigenous advisory board, right, the, the structure is you get three, four people, uh, meet four times a year, you pay them commercial consultant fees uh, for each meeting, but then you have this really insightful and experienced advisory board that you can kind of ask these questions to and guide your decisions. So I think that can be a really good um, start as well because uh, otherwise it can be difficult to understand and navigate this space and you're sort of having a guess if you haven't um, experienced it yourself. So I think trying to look at that end-to-end -end experience, how do we help First Nations people that are remote and how do we help those First Nations people that are in that urban area and, and probably, um, yeah, not a lot of different to, to mainstream. Yeah, that's um, um, it's that sort of yeah holistic approach to to change, um, and even not underestimating the investment space either. Like that, that is that's super powerful. If you look at the investment piece, you know that that's making sure you're ethically investing and um, if people you invest in then employ Aboriginal people or you you change some of your procurement to in, engage more First Nations businesses and they employ Aboriginal people. But that mentality can be far more effective than trying to get 4% of your workforce to be Aboriginal. You can have such a, a bigger impact um, from that lens as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, shifting a little bit in terms of themes, Phil, and um, I'm conscious of the time, so I'll ask a couple more questions um, from, from the crowd. So I appreciate everyone for your questions. Um, this was in reference to the federal court legal challenge to lower the age, the pension age for Indigenous Australians. What do you think the impact will be for the super sector if this is upheld? Yeah, well, I think um, it, it'd be interesting to access the age pension before you access um, your superannuation. That'd be a real flip. Uh, but you look at the super sector, how it's generally set up. You know, you, you can have a pun on people's experience. 20s, you engage with super because you've got a job and you've got to fill out forms. 30s, you might be a bit more diligent where you've had a few jobs and you try and roll it over. 
might start looking at insurance because you've got a family and, and your income's increased. And then it's not until maybe mid to late 40s, 50s, where you're, you're at the peak of your earning. Uh, maybe some kids have moved out. You've got a bit more money where you build up that superannuation and start to access it earlier. And then when you start drawing down, the concept is you have the age pension to be able to act as a safety net. Um, so I think we, we need to replicate that for First Nations people, giving in mind, take, uh, keeping in mind that life expectancy being 71. So if the if this, uh, age pension age decreases, then I think uh, it is natural that the um, hopefully it leads to being able to access super uh, earlier. But I think the best way forward on that is really going to be a tiered approach. You know, super used to be a tiered approach where, you know, if you're born July 1st, 1945 or something, you can access it. But then yeah. if you're January 1st and do it. I think we did that for First Nations people where it acknowledges some of those challenges. But hopefully by my generation, we don't need to do that because the health gap's closed or it's minimised a lot more. So it's not just saying First Nations people can access super at age 52 and, and that's a legislation. Maybe it's a tiered approach where some of the old followers now can start accessing it. But my generation, we, we've closed the health gap and we don't need that kind of um, early access. Yeah, that's, um, I guess that that's the that's the real piece um, of not just service delivery, but broader policy settings um, around engagement with superannuation. Um, and even gender-based, um, you used to be able to access the age pension earlier if you were um, a, a woman. That women and men could access age pension at different ages. So it's historically been done before where you can access, you know, based on different uh, criteria. Yeah, and that's something that I think as, a, as an industry, we really need to um, listen to um, First Nations stakeholders around this issue. We can either support um, uh, any asks that are coming from that conversation. Um, Phil, we might um, stop there. Um, it's about time. Um, I would like to personally thank you for your time and for your insights and for your conversation. Um, I'm not sure if you have any closing remarks you'd like to give. No, it's it's just great seeing can see these numbers down the bottom. How this uh, how much this means to kind of like a whole range of people in this sector. And like I said, in the super sector, most of this is built off people with the right intentions and trying to do the right thing in addition to their kind of day job. So it's always encouraging seeing that. And, uh, yeah, reach out uh, to us on social media or on our website, First Nations Foundation. We can have a yarn and see if um, we can help out in, in any way after that. Thank you, Phil. And um, we'll, we'll engage with AIST and make sure that First Nations Foundation, the details are, are made available. 